Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 64. Glad you could join us. Today, Bonnie is joined by Colby teachers Dr. Carl Hassler and Mrs. Therese Prudlow. The conversation is inspiring, as you'll hear, and reveals why our teachers are so highly valued at Colby. The episode was recorded last summer, so the hypothetical framework of Dr. Hassler's philosophy course is now a reality, being several weeks into the semester. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby online and serve as the Alumni and Public Relations Director. It's my privilege today to visit with Dr. Carl Hassler and Mrs. Therese Prudler. Welcome both of you to the Colby Cast. Good day. Good good afternoon. <laughs> Thank you for having us here again. Thank Thanks you. for coming back, Therese. Glad to have you back. You've been with us on a few episodes. And Dr. Hassler, we're so glad to have you here for what we hope will be the first of many conversations here with us on the Colby Cast. Uh, would you tell us a bit about yourself for those of us who haven't yet had the privilege of meeting you? Well about myself. I guess you don't want to know how tall I am or what I weigh. Um, <laughs> I have been a teacher of philosophy for, oh my gosh, nearly 40 years. I was stricken by ideas, I think is one way of putting it, when I was probably in middle school. I know I don't look my age, but I grew up in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, I, middle school, high school in mid to late 60s, early 70s. My brother's nine years older than I am. He got an all-expense paid trip to Vietnam for a year in 68, came home, um, it changed him. He got interested in Eastern religions, which was the hot thing to get interested in back in the late 60s, early 70s. And of course, I remember going to these strange bookshops in Dallas where they sold Indian philosophy and things like that. So I started reading that stuff. I was raised in the Episcopal Church. So I I started playing with those ideas back and forth and got interested in what they were calling metaphysics and Eastern thinking. And so very early on, I was interested in ideas and knew that I didn't want to follow in my parents' footsteps of um, doing accounting work and finance and things like that. That is not my bag. I also got interested in music when I was that age. I was the proverbial band weenie. <laughs> played, played, in, played in middle school, high school band, and was very fortunate to be in an outstanding music program in high school. We won competitions all the time, and we were playing and performing pieces of music that other schools weren't doing. My senior year, we played Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. If you know that work, it's intensely difficult. It's intensely yes. difficult. And I think, I think we actually did a pretty good job of it. 
the upshot is I decided that I wanted to go to college, university, and study music. And right up the road from Dallas was North Texas State University. It's now the University of North Texas. And they had, and they still do have, one of the best public music schools in the country. And they specialize in the jazz program. So I went up there to study music. And I got involved in the program. I played in the jazz bands and I played in the uh, concert band. I even did, foolishly did one year a marching band, never again. <laughs> and, um, you know, I studied music for two, three years until I got to a point where I realized that there were people who really had talent and I wasn't one of them. So I, uh, in that period of time, I had taken some philosophy classes and, uh, I got interested in books, which is, sort of a curse, I guess. And um, my fourth year in college, as I'm just about to have enough credits to get my degree in music, I died to my parents' utter joy, I was going to change my major. And, you know, they were already a little concerned that I was going to get a degree in music. So I came home and I told them, you know, I think I'm going to change my major to philosophy. And I remember my parents' eyes just sort of rolling up into the back of their head. Oh, I love that. <laughs> they shrugged their shoulders and um, said, oh, you're paying for it. So, you know, and that was back in the days where you could afford to pay for college. I took a year and I, I took all kinds of courses. I took government courses, psych courses, social post courses, philosophy courses, and um, I was working, funny, I was working in a music store, a record store. Yeah. Oh, Here, that's amazing. And uh, they moved me to a shopping mall in Arlington, Texas, just down the street to the University of Texas, Arlington. So I thought, well, I'll just change my, change my school and I'll change my location. And uh, I majored in philosophy at UCA. I got my degree. I spent a year contemplating what I was going to do. Truck driving didn't inspire me. Uh, <laughs> I continued to work in retail. Well, you know, Siberia would have been better, I think. So I decided <laughs> to go to grad school. I had met a couple professors from uh, the University of Missouri, Columbia. I applied to two or three other schools. I really wanted to go to the University of Texas, but they told me I was welcome to come down there, but there was no money. I think one of the other places I applied to was University of Washington. They weren't offering any money. Mizzou offered me money. I said, I'm going to Mizzou. So I went to University of Missouri, Columbia, got my uh, master's and doctorate degree there. Now, what's also interesting is while I was working in Arlington, I met this young lady who um, I got smitten. And um, gosh, we ended up getting married after my first year of graduate school and married into graduate student housing. If you ever know anything about <laughs> it, it was yeah. a concrete bungalow made of cinder blocks. And... Uh, we lived there for a couple of years, and she was the reason that I ultimately converted to Catholicism because my first year in graduate school, while we were waiting to get married, I, I joined the church. 
beautiful little old parish in Columbia, Missouri, um, Sacred Heart Parish, and um, really had had this really cool Irish priest, Father John Long, as I recall, who every summer he would go back to Ireland and direct plays in Cork. So he was just very much into the drama, the liturgy, and uh, uh, that was where I got my first taste of, of Catholicism, really get a taste of Catholicism. Also met a couple of guys in the grad program who have been good friends of mine ever since. Uh, one has passed away, but the other is philosophy teacher at the University of Nebraska, Kearney, Dr. Thomas Martin. Good guy. So that's, that's just a little bit about, about my life. My wife and I weren't able to have children, so we decided we'd, we'd adopt three children. We were living in Missouri at the time, and we, of course, you go to social services initially to adopt children. And, uh, well, to be blunt, they were, they were color coding white people with white babies, and we said, no, no, we'll take any child we can get, and uh, so we got a little turned off on that. We found an agency in St. Louis that was doing adoptions internationally. Peru was the fit for us, so we ended up getting two Incans, and then later on, about 10 years later, we got us a Mayan from Guala. So I've got a Mayan two Incans, and then I got grandchildren from my eldest child. Um, she passed away six years ago from leukemia, and so I'm guardian of my two grandsons, so I'm in my second parenthood. I did three daughters, and now I have two grandsons, and uh, that sort of brings us up to date. Wow. Oh, wow. I think I've been to that church in in missouri like when we were passing through before it sounds really familiar but what an amazing story carl i mean i loved hearing all your different experiences i, ha I have to ask you what your instrument was in college definitely i was gonna do that too <laughs> i was a bass trombone oh very nice 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 and a really really fine horn and unfortunately when we moved back to texas we had to put everything back in the storage, and somebody broke in our storage unit and stole my horn. Oh, no. Thanks. Uh, three years ago, about $8,000, so I'm not playing anymore. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. No, those, those instruments can be so expensive, so expensive to replace. But um, And that's unusual, yeah. bass trombonist. I have this whole personality classification system by instrument, so <laughs> that's fantastic. Bass trombonist. I don't think I worked with, we didn't have very many of them. I accompanied a lot of people in the department. The low brass players were always great to work with. They're very fun to be around, easygoing, had the music for me, you know, <laughs> kind of great. Stuff. Anyway. I think that's really great. We need, we need to find you one so that you can, uh, you can play for us sometime during our Colby's Got Talent. I have no stop. I remember doing um, jury with, Pianist, you know, every semester you'd have to be a jury, and you go running around trying to find a pianist. You got time to do this? It was crazy. It was crazy time. You know, I always enjoyed playing. It was the classes that 
sort of wore me out. I just, just didn't have the head for the theory as well as I needed. And, I, you know, I, we had to take all kinds of piano classes and other instrument classes and conducting classes. And, man, I just want to play. And um, that was not part of the gig. And, I, you know, I got to a point where I realized I don't want to be a band director in Hellhole, Texas. And so, you know, those realizations and the fact that I knew I didn't have the wherewithal to really be a professional performer was just more of the God telling me, you know, you read books pretty well. Why don't you do that? So, That's great. That was, that was sort of <laughs> how, how well, I think. And your story, I think, is so great for telling, you know, how the things that God puts in front of us. We think that, you know, we have a plan for our life. But you never know what's going to come and it's going to direct you into the different locations that you're going to end up in. I really like that with your story. Of course, I've worked with you for a while now here at Colby, and I loved hearing your story about your children that you adopted, too. I mean, that is just so fantastic. There's so many families out there that are really blessed by being able to do that. That is just fantastic. One of the neat things about international adoption is that you have to go overseas and I you know I would have never thought that I would go to South America it, it never occurred I've always thought well I should be in Europe somewhere and of course I've never been to Europe I've never been to Europe but I've been to South America twice I've been to Central America once and talk, those are fantastic places Peru was just amazing and I, I really didn't get to see that much. I just got to see Lima, Peru, and then in Guatemala, we, Guatemala City, and then a little little provincial town called Antigua, which was really cool, had a beautiful cathedral on the square. But I got to see really third world countries. I think more people need to need to do that, or so you know, that would help them understand what these people are going through who are trying to come to this country. It taught me a lot when you can't make a living, when, when the agriculture is dying, when all that stuff is literally going to hell before you. It's no small wonder that these people will risk their lives to walk 2,000 miles to come to this country with the idea that maybe it's a better choice. Absolutely. We think about at least my mother's side of the family who immigrated to this country from Ireland in the 1840s and 1850s after the potato famine, when immigration didn't have legality to it like it does now. You know, I think a lot of people sort of forget these kinds of things. There's real reasons, real hardships for some of these people. Absolutely. Well, I wouldn't walk 2,000 miles unless I had a darn good reason for it. (laughs) Yes, that's for sure. (laughs) So you converted, you said, when you met your wife. So your wife was Catholic. I have to ask, so were there any particular books or anything that she sort of gave you that, I mean, was it just, you're like, well, I'm going to go ahead and study the faith now, you know, because my future wife is Catholic. Or what what struck you as being a reader? What what uh, works really struck you when you were making sort of that that choice? Well, there's, a, there's more of a backstory to it. My mother was raised a Catholic. Good old, she's an O'Brien. She was an O'Brien. Okay. A good Irish Catholic back <laughs> in Pittsburgh. And my father was Presbyterian. 
they got married, you know, people often met in the middle, and so they became Episcopalians. So I was raised in a high Anglican church. I was always sort of interested in Catholicism at arm's length, sort of interested. So there was that. I was an altar boy, and what what we called acolytes in the Anglican church. So so I had a a reverence in the sense of the Mass, even if it was not fully legit. So I had that. I started studying philosophy, and of course, you can't not study philosophy and not somehow run into Catholic thinkers. And so I had run into some Catholic thinkers already. You know, I, I, I didn't have any difficulties with them. I thought, these guys are interesting. So I had that going. Somewhere along the way, as I'm meeting my wife and in that period of time, I managed to read one of my first Chesterton books. Don't know why, just found it. Everlasting Man. And I'm thinking, wow, oh, this kind of interesting. No, I don't understand half of it, but this is kind of interesting too. And I met my wife. And, you know, one thing started leading to another. And um, we started thinking about, eh, yeah, maybe we ought to get married. And I knew that we got a better chance of, of making it down the long road if we share the same faith. She was Catholic. I had a respect and an admiration for Catholics. Now, remember, this is around 1980. We got married in 82. And there's this, there's this guy in Rome who's really way cool, JP2. <laughs> and I'm really influenced by JP Tool. I'm I'm reading I'm reading you know Time magazine when Time actually had articles instead of commercials or advertisements. I'm reading Time magazine articles about him. I'm going this guy this guy's neat and he's doing the solidarity stuff. Now I'm into social and political philosophy, so I'm interested in what's going down. I'm I'm seeing what's happening and I'm reading about him. And I remember reading an article and I use this in class sometimes with my students for different purposes, but I use this my remembrances of this article. He's on a plane, I, I, I guess, going to Poland, and, you know, there's journalists on the plane, too, and he invites this journalist up to see him, and he has his briefcase open, and I always comment, a pope with a briefcase. Now, how weird is that? Okay, he's got his briefcase mm-hmm. open, and in the briefcase is a copy of one of Marx's writings. I don't know, maybe Das Kapital. I'm not sure what's there. And the journalist sees it and remarks, you're in Karl Marx, and the Pope's response is, well, you have to know your adversary. You know, it's funny, General Millet yesterday says, yeah, I've read Marx, I've read Mao, I've read Lenin, that'd make me a communist. Well, the same sort of idea, you know. Back in the late 70s, 80s, it was chic in philosophy departments to be quasi-Marxist, you know, so we're all reading Marx and thinking all that. But I'm thinking, well, this is way cool. So all that's going on, too, at the same time. So I'm thinking, you know, can we get married? I'm not an atheist. I have admirations for Catholicism. I'll become a Catholic. So it wasn't so much that I had read things or not read things. I had read things that certainly were hugging me. But it was more my coming to an intellectual understanding that this is where I need to be. 
you know, God calls in strange ways. So it wasn't so much I read something or didn't read anything, but this was how I was being called to the faith. Now, funny thing also, shortly before I, I met my wife, I remember one day driving to one of the Anglican churches in Arlington, Texas, which is where UTA is, University of Texas, Arlington, go figure that one. Okay. And, and I pulled into the parking lot because I was sort of thinking, I might want to go to seminary because I was getting close to finishing my undergraduate degree. I might want to go to seminary and I pulled into the parking lot. I turned my car off and I sat there and I was thinking, I'm going to go in and talk to this guy, but I couldn't do it. Something wasn't right. Something wasn't right about being there for me. Started the car and I drove off. And so I, that was that good too. So I have all these different things floating around the back of my head. And, you know, we decided we're going to get married. So it, it was a no brainer for me. I'm going to go through RCIA and get instructed. I'm going to become a Catholic. I became a Catholic on Easter of 1982, and uh, we got married in May on my birthday in 1982, 22nd of May. Very sweet. That's very sweet. Sort of how it all played out for me. So, no earthly book that went, bam, oh, there we go. But I think that's, that's beautiful because it's those little moments that direct you in, in what you're doing in your life. And it's the quiet moments. It's not always the big bang moments. And I think that's something that's really important. Uh, it's something I notice that you impart to your students and to your colleagues, those little things that take you through life and, and being open to God's grace and being open to the Holy Spirit working in your life and that can direct you here. And we are so happy to have you here at Colby. So I guess this might be a good moment to ask this. So what led you to Colby? I know I've, I've talked about my story with Colby as I was, you know, homeschooling my kids when they were younger and, and researching different things and, and becoming really intrigued with them. But yeah, how did you sort of find, how did you find your way to us at Colby here? In some ways, it's art story in my life, and yet it has blossomed into being perhaps a, one of the best things that's happened to me in my life. You know, I was a college professor. Mm-hmm. I taught at a community college just north of Dallas for over 20 years. And um, summer 2016, I lost my eldest daughter to leukemia. So we go into 2016 here. And funny, I. I Right before the school year started was a Chesterton conference in which I gave a paper on Chesterton and Schopenhauer, of all people. And if you've ever read Schopenhauer, it's like, you know, morbid, but, but he hasn't. Uh, we go into that year, and it, it is not an easy year for me. We have a new college president at the time, and um, he has reached out to me, which many of my colleagues and I thought was very strange, because previous president didn't want to have anything to do with the faculty. He reached out and sort of made nice and friends and okay. He has grand plans to change the college, restructure everything, and I get put on a committee in the spring for the purposes of hiring 
essentially people to take my place as an administrator. I was a department chair and they were going to get rid of all the department chairs and consolidate. Okay, fine. I thought it was a dumb idea, but okay. I thought my expertise of having been a department chair for 15 years might be of use. Turned out it was just number crunching, so I didn't have much input on it. But I get on the committee. We do our work. They make their announcements, and I can see from my perspective that things were not ethical. I had serious problems with how things were were being done, and I raised the issue and I raised it loudly. And uh, the president didn't care for that, and uh, they came after me and another colleague of mine. Ultimately, I was allowed to voluntarily resign my position. I did. So of course, I had to scramble. I got the seats during the summer, but in, during the during the summer, I'm scrambling, trying to find you know how to piece things together. Because at the time, again, I looked very young, but I was 60 at the time, and uh, 60-year-old trying to find a full-time position at the college university level is is like you know trying to swim in the ocean with. Um, Especially at that time of the year, it's it's late in the year at that point. They, yeah. Just, just get it. Uh, so I'm scrambling. So I, I call all the marks I know. So I get a I get a position at University of Texas at Dallas part time. I get into the Dallas Community College district because I know some people there. I got a part time gig there, and I call my Chesterton friends, and I say, Hey guys. Any idea? Joseph Pierce had taught for Colby. Joseph Pierce connected me with Megan Lennell. I wangle an interview with Megan. And she probably regrets it to this day, but Megan gave me. No, <laughs> I tell that. I interviewed with Megan. We had a really nice chat. She was probably desperate to find somebody, so that's why she gave me a job, but she hired me to teach literature class. And this is, what, 2016? Yeah, 2016. Mm-hmm. Then the next year, they gave me a lit class, and Anne needed somebody to teach history, so I started teaching history. And it continues to mushroom. Now I'm teaching 30 classes. Uh, <laughs> uh <laughs> And now I'm teaching philosophy. God knows what I'll be teaching after next this year, but um, uh, it's been a blessing. It's been a blessing. Well, so, I know it's been a blessing for for all of us. Carl was an enormous help when we were redoing the History 11 course, which was a, as you know, Carl, it still is. It's a beast of a course, <laughs> and we. <laughs> We jangled it all together, as my kids call it. It went uh, it went really well this past year. So teaching and sort of putting it into practice, I think. So yeah, it it was definitely a much better course last year than the, in previous years. Um, yeah. And uh, but, I mean, a lot just, of that is due to your me calling or texting him and saying, "What about this? What do you think about this?" Because it's one of those courses. It's, it's such a huge scope that 
sometimes I would be sitting there and, you know, you, you can't see the forest for the trees. So you're like, okay, so you're fantastic helping me with that and, and team teaching it with me. That was really, that was really great. I've really uh, been you know, well, grateful to get to know you through our history department here. You've done good and I'm glad I was able to help. I can't tell you how excited I was to see your philosophy course come down the pipeline when I when I saw that they were going to offer one and then of course the first person that jumped to my head I'm like well I hope they are having Dr. Hassler I hope he's going to be in there teaching it and and sure enough there you were because <laughs> oh. I I hear from the students I hear from my own my son is taking you he had he had you for a literature past year and I mean he just he really enjoyed your classes. I love hearing about your book list that you give everyone and your music recommendations. And Ooh, it, it's, hear about that. it's a full course. <laughs> you talked about this, you know, that you have a, such a great love for a liberal arts education and the importance of, of putting that all together in all these different areas, whether it be literature or history and now philosophy and, and tying everything together that you're teaching the whole person, which I think is, is just so, so great. Yeah. So I, I'm excited. So, so how did this how did this philosophy course come about? And can you tell us a little bit about it? Like, well, I'm not completely sure how it came about, other than all of a sudden I'm approached about constructing a philosophy class, and I said, sure, I'll be happy to do that. But as far as when it began to germinate, I don't know, other than I know that Nicholas Sens and I are sort of teaming with this. He's doing the homeschool part, and I'm I'm doing the online in-class part. It's going to be a year-long course, so Plato and Aristotle, a brief discussion on the pre-Socratics, and I'm trying to cobble together three, four, five, six-page lists of quotes because there's no extant writings to speak of. There's just references, fragments. So I'm trying to cobble together right now some ideas that we can work with. They're predominantly Catholic writers, but of course, obligatory Descartes and, and a few others. I just read an essay by Joseph Pieper, who's writing it. He's a 20th century thinker. Just wrote a short little essay by him on the abuse of language, the abuse of power, which we're going to read at the end of the year, which I think I read 30 years ago. But obviously, it's so apropos of today that it'll be a wonderful piece at the end. We're going to read John Paul's Fides Eratio Excellent. Uh, at the end of the end of the year, and then you know people like John Scotus and Bonaventure and uh, and some Aquinas, of course. That's sort of the framework. I don't have my notes in front of me, so I can't be more thorough than that. I think it's going to be a good course. I'm really looking forward to. It. We're reading a couple of things I've never read, so I'm I'm kind of excited about that. I love when you, you talk about like that you teach a course because you can read something that you haven't read before, which I think is such a great thing. I, I've heard you know, my husband and other professors say that, that oftentimes they're so excited to teach a course because they, they haven't been able to really study something so they can really learn it. it. I think it speaks to being that lifelong learner is that you're constantly wanting to learn new things. It's really great. 
you know, usually sometimes yeah, during class, tell my students something like, you know, I'm in this with you. I'm not, I'm, I'm here to learn too. I'm not, That's right. I'm not just a so-called dispenser of wisdom as if I am. I'm not. But I'm, I'm here to learn too. So the more you participate, the more I can possibly gain from what you have to offer. I'm always sort of approaching them that way to try and cajole them into engaging in the discussion more. But I'm, but I'm, but I mean that. I mean that. You know, that's fantastic. At the end of the semester, you know, I'm reading 50 million papers, and I keep coming across kids who are saying some things, and I thought, wow, I had thought that. That's a really interesting interpretation. So you know, yeah. these kids are showing me some things in the literature that. I had that dawned on me, so I'm feeling everything I can get. That's great. That's great. I love really that. Is. I love. So, how have you liked? I mean, I know you said that this has been a real blessing, being able to add this to your regular college level classes. But how how have you liked um, making that transition to teaching the high school years and such? Is how is it different, or you know, are there certain things that you and enjoy? Well differences the kids are obviously younger so i have to be right. a little more guarded about how i say things <laughs> um, okay in college, in college class you could be more colorful okay sure good word good word <laughs> in that way probably good for my soul you know i told my students this I have students at Colby that write as well, if not better, than many, many of the college students I ever taught. Most of these kids, not all of them, most of them are better prepared now than kids I taught at community college and university. So I've not really altered very much how I teach class. Now, the criticism I get from my chairs is they want me to do more um, group work. I'm not a big <laughs> fan of that, but I will accommodate what they want me to do. I've got to figure out how to do that more because that's not what I did in college teaching. We didn't do uh, but, but okay, I, I realize it's a socializing idea, and because it's an online school, it, it, it's really sort of important, and I get that, and, and I understand it, and I see it, I see the logic of it, so I've got to learn to do that a little more, and it's a little harder to get everybody into the discussion in a way in which I could do in a classroom of 25 where I can walk among the desks and walk up and down the aisles because I'm very peripatetic and, and it's really hard to stay stationary in a computer class. But I would be very peripatetic in my classrooms and I could, you know, stop at somebody's desk and I'd say, okay, now what do you think? You know, it's harder to do that. So I, I, mm. you know, I need to work on. And so that's a little bit different. But really, in, in essence, I'm not much different in how I teach at Colby than I was when I was at college and university. And really, that's a testament to the students. 
even my 10th grade kids, they were much better prepared than I expected. I really was dreading that class going into it last year because I thought, oh my God, 10th graders, good God, they're so young. And yet that was really one of my better classes this year. I was very impressed. Now I had a couple in that class that didn't belong there, but, but that, that happens and I understand that. And last year was a strange year because of the pandemic and, you know, yeah. uh, parents freaking out about what to do with their kids. But, um, yeah, that was a really, really a, a good class. I was very impressed with the work they did and, and their level of discussion. And it's so, such a great, it's such a fun topic too for a lot of them too. I mean, ancient Rome is is a lot of fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun for me because it's stuff that I hadn't read in forty years. Right. <laughs> 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 trying to catch up with all that too, so that was different. But um, I enjoyed it, and I was very impressed. Well, and I and I hear a lot from your students that you like to bring in these these great discussion questions for them to really get them thinking and whether it be in literature or history and you know, get get them to think critically about, you know, they're not just telling you back the story, but they're really delving into what happened, why it happened, what can we discern from these different topics and and I know as a parent, I appreciated it, seeing those kind of discussions and really getting them to think about it and and even so that they're coming to the table and they're talking about it and they're saying, this is what we did in class today with Dr. Hassler. And and these are questions he asked. I mean, you really can see how that, that this idea of philosophy is really important in a liberal arts education. And I love how you, you bring it into your classes here. These questions oftentimes are not premeditated. In other words, I'm feeding off of what they're saying, and I'm going, well, okay, I hadn't thought that. Okay, well, what about this? So, I, you know, it, I sometimes have these little bubbles that happen for me during class. And Light bulb moments, right? That's what we call them. <laughs> I don't generally come to class with notes. I mean, in, in history I do because I can't remember all that stuff. But even in the history classes, you know, I'm waiting for the light bulb to pop up. Okay, have you thought about this? Would this have changed things? So, you know, you sort of the counterfactual stuff, but not really. But but in the lit class, I almost never really use notes. I may give them an introductory discussion, but when we're actively engaging in discussions about the text, I'm just sort of feeding off of what they're saying and um, how I've read the work, seeing how do you think about this? You know, how do you think about Hamlet? <laughs> As opposed to how I'm thinking about Hamlet's soliloquy. What's he really doing here? You know, that kind, of, that kind of stuff. So for some parents and such, you know, they're going to see this philosophy class crop up on our on our webpage, right? Everyone knows, oh, you take history at Colby. We have literature, we have theology, we have English. Um, with math and sciences, philosophy. What is this philosophy class all of a sudden? What yeah, would you say? Out there. <laughs> that's right. What What would you recommend to those parents that are asking, well, is this important or why is this important or how, or how does this fit in 
to a high school curriculum? You know, why is this necessary? What would, what would sort of be your, your advice to them on that? It so happened that I was reading uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And where is it? Chapter 2, 8. He says, See to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. So I thought about that. And I thought about that in light of why students should take philosophy. You can't know that you're being taken by someone if you don't know or have knowledge of the subject matter. Philosophy is at the very heart of all education and knowledge. If Aristotle's right, and who am I to argue with Aristotle? Right? Plato would probably agree. So at the very heart of all knowing is the philosophical question. If you don't study the philosophical questions, then you're coming into the play already several steps removed from the foundation. And, and, and that's fine for a lot of people, I suppose. But we're trying to give students the wholeness of an education, to show them what, what the whole depth of learning is about. And, and so if a parent wants to know why philosophy is important, I guess the question would ask, would well, be thinking is important? Philosophy, if anything, teaches thinking, which is why it's a liberal art or the arts liberalis, those arts which free us from our ignorance. And I mentioned that I was reading Keeper's essay, The Abuse of Language, Abuse of Power. And what he's talking about here, in part, is the abuse of language. I'll give you an example. We talk about those awful liberals or those awful conservatives. You know? And depending on your political persuasion, you go, oh, yeah, right. They're awful. Mm-hmm. But the liberal, if we understand what the word means, is to be free of ignorance. And if you're going to be conservative, that means it's conserving what is good. That's right. From liberal freedom of, of from our ignorance. And so philosophy, at least in part, endeavors to get us past buzzwords, get us past poor use of language, teach us how to speak carefully about what is being said, because what is being said shapes how we understand our very existence. Plato talks about two types of speaking in the Republic, what is said and how it's said. Well, how things are said is very important, but how things are said follows upon what is said. If we don't attend to what is said, you can say all kinds of things and it may sound great and you will go to hell for it. 
That's right. I, I love yeah. that. Yeah. I, lo- I love that part in the Republic. It's very important. A good reason to study philosophy is to learn how to become a more careful, thoughtful thinker and to understand the foundations of ideas, how to, how to get at those foundational concepts. That's what I would tell parents if they were to ask me that question. Oh, and, I, and I would say, and I would hope they would understand that. Yes, it sure comes up a lot, that term, critical thinking, we've commented on how that term too is thrown around and it means something than than what the common parlance takes it to mean now. So this is what we're actually talking about. (laughs) Yeah, critical thinking, that's been a buzzword since the 80s when I was in grad school. We started talking about critical thinking. Well, of course, what what in the world do we mean by that? Um, Simply using logic and using good reason and speaking out the truth. So for those of us parents, we have enrolled our students in Colby. We have come to Colby for assistance with their formation, their education. Those of us who don't have much knowledge of philosophy ourselves beyond buzzwords or, you know, long ago sort of overview of it or even a more secular approach to it. Do you have any resources or recommendations for folks like us? Well, if you put your child in a philosophy class, Read what your child's reading. Start with the ancient Greeks and, and go. I could recommend, say, Copleson's History of Philosophy. Uh, I have it in Very nine, good one. I have it in nine volumes, all the old image paperbacks, but, but you can get it in a three volume. You could read that, but you'd probably get all bogged down. That may not be very helpful to you. And you can find an introductory book in philosophy, and maybe that's helpful, maybe not. Pick up Plato and read Plato's dialogue. Okay. I love that because I, I, I think that's really important. I mean, there are some. I mean, that compilation of the history of, of philosophy is it's, it's excellent. But you're right. You know, there's certain works that just pick them up and read them along. And and, and I think the combination of all the things you're going to be reading in class this year, I know I know I'm going to be picking up a few of them while my my son's in it. Even if I don't get to them this year, they'll be added to my ever-growing book list. <laughs> well, you know, students sometimes ask me, oh, we'll be reading Philosopher X, and they'll say, well, is there somebody else I could read that would help me with? And I said, I would rather you struggle with the text itself mm-hmm. than to read somebody else telling you what they're saying because already you're getting an interpretation make your own interpretation read it first then once you've got a handle of it then go read what other people are saying about what this philosopher said that's the way you don't read somebody telling you what Shakespeare says before you read Shakespeare you read Shakespeare and then you go find somebody who can tell you maybe what Shakespeare's saying or pick anybody up pick any other writer pick any other right. writer read the writer first and then you go and see what someone else say because then you have a perspective you have to have your own perspective That's you have to right. do your own thinking first if you don't do your own thinking then don't read the philosophers let somebody else tell you what to believe that's so important it, and it leads back to those 
you know, reading these these ideas, and that's what we do, right? At Colby, is those primary texts. Read those primary texts, and it's so important because then you you come up with your own ideas, like you said. But then you you know later, if you do come across someone's secondary source that is commenting on it, you can be like, oh, I hadn't thought about it in that way, or that's interesting. But you, like you said, you have then brought something to that discussion. You prepared for class in a way, I guess. Would you say? Yeah. Absolutely. That's one of the benefits, I think, of, of studying alongside our students. What has been very carefully chosen for the Colby curriculum helps not just the student, the parent as well. Even if the student's in the online course, the, the parent can still get a lot of benefit from it as well. That's a great idea. So uh, Therese mentioned the reading list that you put together and your study music recommendations. That, oh going my back goodness. to that for a second, where, what's your inspiration for those? I love lists like this. I collect them. Well, I thought about that. Father Shaw, Father James V. Shaw, every book you ever get from, uh, that's written by Father Shaw has lists of books to read. And I, and I think probably one of my inspirations for that comes from reading Father Shaw. I met Father Shaw a couple times at Chesterton conferences in the early 2000s. He was dangerously smart. I had the honor of going to lunch with him a couple of times. This was in St. Paul, Minnesota. And there was this really nice little German, uh, German restaurant off campus, uh, the Glockenspiel. I don't know if it's even there any longer. But we would go in, we'd go in there and we would order, order lunch and we'd get these big Dines, a good German beer, and, and we'd sit down and we would talk. And, you know, Shaw was the kind of guy that you would go, well, you know, in this work, oh, yeah, I know that work. He knew everything. He was scary for everything. One of these profoundly wise Jesuits. And, and I was very, very honored to have the opportunity to sit and chat with him. And I corresponded with him a few times. Uh, over over the years, because he had some relations close to Dallas, and uh, just the nicest of of people, and um, really really an interesting man. And it, every one of his books has lists of uh, books to recommend. And so I, I guess part of I got the idea partly from him, maybe some other teachers that I had when I was an undergraduate. But I've always been in groups of, of faculty where we talk books. I've always been in book groups. While I'm part of the Chesterton group in my area, I, I've always liked to talk about books and talk about ideas. And so one of the things you do when you talk about books is you recommend books to other people. And so it's just one of those things that, that comes naturally to me I did it some at the college university level, although I'm sure my students didn't care for it too much there. I started doing it in my Colby classes. Got some good feedback on it, so I just kept it as part of my classes. Uh, the music thing is something that I do outside of class in, in just course updates. It's primarily because kids don't have good music for that. That's so true. Well, I just remember the first time I came across it as I was walking by 
where my son, he was studying and he was listening. I, I can't even remember what was the piece he was listening to, this great piece of, of, I think it was a piece of jazz music. And because, you know, my husband and I, I mean, we love jazz, but I hadn't heard him listen to it. I'm like, what are, what are you listening to? He's like, oh, this is my study music. <laughs> this is my study music, mom. Dr. Hassler oh, is recommending study music. <laughs> I it. said, oh, that, I like that. You'll have to send it to me. Generally, I generally I recommend only sort of instrumental music, but every once in a while I come across some old late sixties, early seventies folk music that that I grew up listening to. That I think is just genuinely good music, and I'll recommend that. I don't give them any of the uh, sort of progressive rock music that I got into in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I, I know the terrible. students. They've asked me that in classes. What's your favorite piece of music? And so I have a I have a a, a, a curated list. <laughs> yeah, I have to be careful. I don't. You know, there there are certain artists that I might listen to that I'm not going to recommend to my students. But but uh, good classical music that I'm I know pretty well. Good jazz people, uh, people that I've seen in concerts. You know, I'll I'll take post those and updates for the students to listen to, um, because I just think it's good musicianship. I, I you know I'm trying to expose them to good good musicianship, uh, more yes. than more than just music that I happen to like. Uh, you know, they ought to know what what good musicianship is, because I don't know that they get much of that these days with drum machines and you know right. tapes music where kids are just dancing all over the place and singing silly songs um you know but i think it's so important it's, it's again looking at that whole person right i mean it's the whole it's not just giving them information and and books to regurgitate it's it's the entire person and and music is such an important part of our our heritage and our past and and edifying and uplifting and, and yes that's the way it should be. Just like good visual art should be edifying and uplifting. If it's not, then you don't need it. So that's just sort of my inspiration for that. I think that's great. Do do you guys have much opportunity to get into sort of the state of music as you're just describing that quality of musicianship is such a that's an easy one to kind of toss around also without really having a good understanding of what that is. Do you have opportunities to sort of parse out what what leads you to recommend that particular piece does that ever come up as a general rule no it doesn't and i i tend to sort of refrain from that because usually when you get into discussions with other people about about music it it, it devolves very quickly into <laughs> what you like and what you don't like as opposed to what constitutes a quality musician and skill level it's yeah. very hard to convince people that knowing how music works and functions and and what constitutes a high quality of skill level matters when it comes to evaluating music most people think that it's in the eye of the beholder that there are no really objective qualities you know, when you get into those arguments with people who don't understand the objectivity of of music, you're just banging your head against the wall. And I, yeah. I don't want to do that anymore. I've 
I've banged my head too many times with, with people who uh, don't have a sense of um, musical composition and, and the structure of music and why rhythm and, and chordal structures matter and things like that. Well, it sounds like similar to how you engage your students in conversation and discussions and, and thinking more deeply about their responses to the texts you're reading and the discussions you're having. What you put forth by the way of musical recommendation that speaks to them in another way. And even if they don't pick up on it overtly, that over time, the more you listen to the recommendations you give, the students can pick up on that, that some of those qualities that aren't immediately apparent. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's sort of the idea. Let it seep in, as it were. Plato talks about that in the Republic, how music sort of seeps into your soul and, and affects you. And, I, and, and that's, how I, that's how I sort of see it. It's, it but, but we have to watch out. That's where the guardians are. The guardians are watching has to do with music, he tells us, because music can affect us all in an imperceptible way. And so, yeah, that, that's sort of the idea. Well, I gotta get a hold of your recommendations somehow. Okay, I'm gonna be scheming about that. How can I get those? I would love those myself. <laughs> all right, this has been fantastic. I wish you all the best with your forthcoming course, in addition to the other courses you teach. And I thank you so much for the time you've taken with us today, Dr. Hassler. Yes, thank you so much. I mean, it is always, always so great to talk to you and as uplifting and, and you've truly, you've stricken us by ideas as well here today. Well. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.